Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and we have our new intro music playing here in the background. You're listening to the episode 145 on February 22nd, 2024. First off, thank you so much for tuning in to the Fun Police podcast series. We just wrapped up season two. Uh, episode four of uh, the second season was released yesterday. So thank you so much to all the listeners who've tuned into our series, who supported the podcast, who recommended it to friends and family, who left favorable reviews, who tweeted at me, who emailed me. I really, really appreciate it. I hope we can do more in the future. We'll, we'll have to see whether that's going to be something that we you know, can dedicate resources to. In any case, thank you so much. And if you want to help us do more of Fun Police and of this weekly podcast, you can do so by going to consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate, where you can donate in euros, dollars, and cryptocurrency as well, if you so choose. Um, this week's guest is uh, Karen Melker. She's um, a member of the European Parliament for Denmark. She's an independent member of the European Parliament, and she's a part of the Renew Europe Parliamentary Group. I'm asking her about her view on hate speech on social media platforms. What is the need for regulatory oversight? What should be censored on social media? And how can the companies adequately comply without going overboard on restricting free speech? You'll hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, in preparation for a crowded summer, some European cities are increasing their tourist taxes, and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is officially running for a second term. So let's get started. Crowded, crowded, crowded. That's what it looks like for many European cities this summer and also early spring. And um, every year we sort of have this conversation about how crowded many cities have become. Of course, Italy is one uh, very effective, but of course, Paris and Amsterdam also on the line of those cities that become rather busy. And as a result of that, you know, people are, are trying to, are scrambling to get an hotel room, trying to visit. Uh, and of course, ever since the end of COVID-19, uh, more people are again traveling. Even with the cost of living crisis, people are sort of saving in order to go out and visit European cities. And of course, that's a massive uh, boost to the economy uh, for many places. Um, from Venice to Amsterdam, bus bans and TikTok influences are helping reduce tourist numbers. That's what Euronews Travel is reporting. Multiple new anti-tourism measures in Amsterdam. So we'll start off with Amsterdam here. Uh, Amsterdam is raising its tourist tax to 12.5% of the accommodation cost in 2024. This means an average 120 euro room would carry in a potential 15 euro charge per night up from currently 7%. That's the highest rate in Europe. The increase applies to all establishments from hotels and bed and breakfast to campgrounds. And uh, 2024 also means further measures to combat over-tourism in Amsterdam. The city banned buses weighing over 7.5 tons from entering the city center, except those granted special exemptions, and increased the tax for cruise ship passengers visiting the city for a day from 8 euros to 14 euros per person. Uh, also increased taxes in Paris. The tourist tax in Paris increases by 200% in 2024, according to the news network France 24. The increased the increase is part of the government's plan to fund enhancements in public transportation. Uh, and of course, 
as many of you know, uh, uh, Paris is also the host of the 2024 uh, Olympics. And that, of course, is happening between July 26 and August 11, which is already high tourist season for a city like Paris. So, uh, of course, even more people trying to book out all of the hotels in a city that's already not too cheap. Uh, even stricter uh, is uh, trying to be uh, Venice, uh, which is, uh, of course, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, which in 2021 banned cruise ships large cruise ships, uh, we should say. And Euronews also reports that to combat the influx of daily visitors, the Italian city is testing a new access tax for tourists who visit without staying overnight. Each visitor pays 5 euros a day from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. The city will test this tax for 10 days in May, June and July 2024. Based on the results, the city hopes to implement changes in 2025. Venice also announced on its official website that it will limit tourist walking groups to 25 people and ban loudspeakers since the latter causes disturbance. It will likely take effect on June 1st, with which its detourism campaign to promote a lesser-known Venice for visitors. Venice may join Rome and Florence in restricting the number of short-term rental properties, which aligns with broader national efforts in Italy. In June 2023, the Italian Ministry of Tourism unveiled the first draft of a proposed legislation to regulate short-term tourist rentals across Italy, including Airbnb listings, um, and uh, and of course uh, you know some of these measures are are, are specifically for the summer, uh, but of course uh, you know what happens is that for a lot of these uh, short term rental markets is that if if if, it, if it's not interesting to do it in the summer, it might not be interesting to do it for the rest of the year, and that of course uh, also restricts access to tourism. I mean this is a um, this this can cause a larger problems. I mean, and uh, as far as I understand, I mean, as much as much as I understand the the problems with overcrowding, uh, what happens, of course, is if you make it so incredibly difficult uh, for people to enter the city and to stay in the city, what you might do is, um, you know, is eventually turn people off visiting the city altogether. And a lot of the businesses rely on the amount of tourists that come in in order to benefit from it. In, in a way, I mean, countries such as Italy has so many access points, there's so many beautiful places to visit. Um, instead, it should, you know, do diversion and, and, and say, okay, I mean, there's so many other beautiful places. I know that, for instance, in the south of Italy, there's, there's, there's some cities that could probably be visited more. And, you know... Uh, Islands such as Sicily, which is heavily advertising in 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 in, in media outlets uh, all around the world, in order to get people to to actually visit it. So while Italy in itself might not need uh, additional uh, additional uh, advertising, uh, some parts of the country certainly do. On the other hand, what it might also do is make these cities so exclusive for people who can afford it, and in its increased exclusivity like places such as Ibiza as well, what it does is that it makes those places only available to a certain amount of people. And then I think in a couple of years from now, we'll have the same conversation over so the exclusivity of travel and having only rich people being able to access certain destinations. I think it's a, it's, it's good to have a good mix and you know make it possible also that to understand that these cities are not just tourist hubs. They're also business centers. People travel there for business and for visiting family and, and also need a lot of these accommodation services. So it's not just your American tourist trying to take a picture of the, the Colosseum. It's all types of people. It's people visiting people that they might be in a long-distance relationship with or, uh, or, or visiting friends. Or, you know, it's a lot of these things that I think sort of get swept under one image of tourism. I think that is not entirely fair. 
Next up, we have Ursula von der Leyen is officially running again for a second term. The European Commission president says the EU is stronger and more secure after her time in office. Ursula von der Leyen has just confirmed her intention to stand again for the top job at the EU's executive. In an interview with Euronews' Germany correspondent, she said Europe should rely more on its own resources for defence. Europe has gotten stronger because we all understand how important it is to have a sound security spending and to be able uh, to provide security and to, to, to defend ourselves. Look at the investment of, uh, uh, in security and defense. Last year it was around 280 billion. This year projected is already 350 billion euros, so there's an increase. Uh, we have to spend more, we have to spend better, and I think we have to spend more European to consolidate our defense industrial base. Ursula von der Leyen had a rocky first term as commission uh, president. That is uh, uh, saying the least here. Uh, I think, you know, uh, this, this will also come up as we talk increasingly about the European elections on this podcast. The world has changed a lot and uh, since 2019. We've discussed this when Peter Klepper joined the podcast recently, is that we have a very different situation that we did in 2019. In 2019, the European Parliament became the greenest parliament it ever had been. Uh, this was when, you know, Greta Thunberg was genuinely an important influence, where it was inconceivable to many Europeans that we would have a global pandemic or a war on, you know, the scale that we're seeing right now within Europe, that those those expansionist ambitions that we've seen out of Russia, that, that those are real, um, that is that has sort of dawned on a lot of, lot of Europeans. And we have very different challenges. We have challenges on security and 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 you know, sort of what is the preparation for a next upcoming potential pandemic. And on the track record on sort of where the priorities were set by the von der Leyen Commission, I think that has deteriorated the image of a lot of those institutions. And as a result of that, I think we can see that in the polling right now is the way that people will eventually vote in this upcoming election, if we look at the polls, is that even though Ms. von der Leyen might very well end up having another majority again to be reappointed as commission president, we're still looking at a very different political landscape. And sort of is she able to adapt to that? And and I think she might be. To me, she seems a bit like the archetype of the Angela Merkel type politician. She will switch around and 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 act in accordance to what's popular at the moment. She is the the robot type reading the polls and translating that chatbot type into policy. And I think that has frustrated a lot of people. I mean, even just look at, you know, the European Green Deal. I mean, if you, if you look at the announcement, you'd have thought that Ms. von der Leyen stands with all her feet and entire team on this proposal. Uh, but the moment that there is a, a certain amount of backlash, it all goes out the window. And it makes you hard. It makes it hard to understand sort of what she genuinely believes in, if anything. And, and that sort of goes back to a whole backstory of how she became commission president in the first place. I mean, on the one hand, coming out of Germany as defense minister with a significant potential uh, uh, alleged uh, corruption nepotism uh, scandal. And on top of that, sort of guaranteeing her commission post with the votes of the, the Polish uh, Law and Justice Party, uh, where we still don't know exactly what was promised to people in order to, to do that. I mean, it was Angela Merkel's 
appointment with the with the fact that Emmanuel Macron liked her as well because she's fluent in French and quite a francophile. Uh, so her political legacy, I wouldn't know how to describe it. I mean, eventually we'll have to wait for her, her memoirs to be able to understand how she describes herself. She sort of wants to be seen, I think, as this type of Jean-Claude Juncker type character, like this statesman, stateswoman type personality. But I'm not really sure that that flies with the voters. But we'll see. We'll see. And last but not least, we have our interview with Karen Melchior. She is a member of the European Parliament for Denmark. She's part of the Renew Europe Parliamentary Group. And we talked about um, what should the rules be on social media platforms for content moderation and how can content moderation effectively be implemented when right now algorithms are doing all the work. So you can hear the entire exchange right now. So Karen Melchior, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So um, for the listeners who've already heard the outro, we are going to just briefly play your speech where you spoke in the uh, plenary of the European Parliament in, uh, in Strasbourg on February 7th about this issue of content moderation and algorithms. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Commissioner, for being here, for the rapporteur of the Digital Services Act. With the Digital Services Act, we oblige platforms to fight hate speech and disinformation, to protect our democracy, information and debate online. The horrific Hamas terrorist attack in Israel and the war in Gaza has put that promise to the test. And as it stands, we're failing. The prioritization of speed over accuracy has meant legitimate content has been removed while hate speech slips through. Pro-Palestinian views have, de facto or de algorithm, been censored. A platform's choice in detection systems has resulted in overseas detection of Arabic language hate speech while leaving detection of Hebrew language hate speech inaccurate. Since the 7th of October, we've also seen an avalanche of disinformation, the use of AI-generated content and misrepresentation of images from other conflicts to garner support. We are tested in times like these. Platforms cannot rely on algorithms alone. Because remember, platforms do not understand context. Platforms need to make sure that they have both the staff and the technical means to run their services responsibly. We demand responsibility by design in the online platforms. A swift and forceful enforcement of the DSA is the only way to fulfill the promise to our population that they can trust their online democracy and media. Thank you. Yeah, so I wanted to give you the opportunity now to talk about this a bit more. I know the plenary in the European Parliament just gives you a bit, uh, a bit about a minute to, to talk about these issues. So what is the problem you identify exactly? You say that algorithms don't have the capacity that humans would in order to do content moderation on social media. There are more requirements now for social media platforms to comply, to have content moderation. Uh, how do you identify this problem? Because you said there's certain languages that are more penalized than others. Um, can you go a bit more into detail for our audience to understand what the problem is exactly? Well, the ag algorithm does exactly what we ask them to, but they don't go anywhere uh, beyond what we ask them. And they don't understand context. So, for example, um, a few years ago, there was a big problem regarding YouTube where evidence of war crimes were taken down because they depicted violence. 
well, that's kind of the definition of war crimes. But of course, it's violence, but it's very important video material to have in order to prosecute uh, the perpetrators of war crimes. But because the algorithm was just set up to take down um, take down violence, they then also took down and didn't leave a recording of the content that was being taken down. If you also... Um, have specific keywords that you go for, uh, but not understanding the context, or you have people describing something or talking around the keywords that the algorithm is set up for, then you can produce hate speech without triggering the algorithm. And that's why you cannot rely on algorithms alone to remove hate speech. You need to have and something that understands context, you need to have moderation that goes beyond the algorithm in place on a platform. And you also need to have an understanding of um, the, well, the context wider politically and also the influence of particular um, accounts. Uh, you also need to understand whether... Um, many reportings of uh, specific content or um, a specific account, if that could be actually disingenuous and in order to harass the person behind the account. And you could also look at um, the way, for example, um, on the platform formerly known as Twitter, that the then um, President Donald Trump said, it's going to be wild, this uh, demonstration that was going to happen on the 6th of January. Well, the algorithm wouldn't understand that as an incitement uh, to violence and insurrection, um, but a human would have. And therefore, you can't just rely on the algorithms, but you need something more and beyond that. Well, that makes sense. Of course, the, um, the, the, the monitoring of the big accounts is, is certainly something that can be done manually. But sort of my why question pops up and it's like, I, I just looked this up just, just before we, we started recording here. Uh, Facebook has 350 million photos a day and a billion stories a day being uploaded. 500 million tweets uh, a day on, on Twitter, now X. Uh, 500 hours of videos uh, per minute on YouTube. Clearly, we run into the problem that there wouldn't be enough people to hire to go through all of this. So what do you think the proportion should be between how, how, how much manual moderation should, should platforms be required to do within the DSA? What is, do you think the parliament eventually or the commission needs to put a number on this? How much staff needs to work on this? How do we solve this? Because clearly the content is much bigger than, than, than what people could do. So how do we fix this? Well, when we did the GDPR, we said it was privacy by design. I think when we look at platforms in the DSA, we should look at responsibility by design. You should build your responsibility, not just for engagement and maximizing the amount of hours that we spend on the platform, but also building it for a responsible community and responsible sharing of content on the platform. Unfortunately, that's not what the platforms have been doing. Even in regards to, for example, copyright issues, then the platforms haven't actually wanted to be responsible for this. If you look at Instagram, there are plenty of accounts that increase their reach by sharing other people's material. And Instagram doesn't really do anything about this. They just ignore the fact that these really big accounts share smaller accounts 
content to get the to get the traffic. Um, you could build into the way that you arrange your platform to have reach out to community in moderating the content. One of the best content moderation models is actually Wikipedia. And you could be inspired by that and leverage the community that you have on the platform to moderate the content in a good way. Now, um, there seems to definitely have been have been a surge in uh, you know whenever there's whenever there's a major conflict there's a surge in 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 these type of uh, statements inflammatory statements on on different sides um and then at the same time as you point out in in your, in your speech as well that people who didn't mean badly at all you know contextually they were just trying to talk about the issue that they get that they get censored uh, through through the algorithm also this is you know this this sort of shows how complex our communication has become and how people find workarounds and i remember doing the whole conversation on copyright that you just brought up that was also one of the concerns of many many people in the european parliament that if we if if we tell the platforms nothing nothing that is copyrighted can be on your platform for longer than X amount of hours. They will be incentivized to take down as much content as possible. Somebody who is just a cover band makes music. The algorithm doesn't know the difference between a cover and the original might censor. Um, this is really a fine line. And and and, um, and it, do you think the parliament is currently up to the task of, 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 of walking this fine line of trying to give guidance or because to me very often it seems like the parliament is making requests and then the platforms have a certain amount of time to figure it out and if it's not being figured out then then sort of the, the consumers end up being the ones stuck with uh, uh, content bans or you can't access your account anymore and, and and sort of like how do we how do we find this balance i think the copyright directive was a model for not how to for how to not do things um where you ignored largely the differences in size of the platforms. And you also had this requirement of very speedy takedowns of copyrighted material, which incentivizes platforms to take down more rather than be fined uh, for leaving something up for too long. I think with the DSA, we've struck a better balance uh, regarding differentiation between the sizes of platforms. You have the very large online platforms and you have other platforms. And we also have a dialogue uh, with the platforms and the commission where we look at how they how they construct their platform in a responsible way so that it's not just a question of within X amount of hours, you need to take these types of content down, but you need to show how you mitigate risks. How far do you think the European Union should be willing to go um, when platforms do not sh- want to be compliant. If Elon uh, says, look, X is a free speech haven, um, anything can be said, well, do I we mean, eventually, wh- where do we get? Well, eventually, do we have to ban Twitter in Europe? What, what, does that, what does that mean? We need to have a dialogue with the people responsible for the platforms. Unfortunately, with a platform formerly known as Twitter, the CEO of the platform or whatever his title is, does not seem to want to be compliant on it. I'm just begun a a recent book called Exceptionally Hardcore about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And it seems like free speech is just a cover of wanting the algorithms to promote himself more than anything else. So it's not really, it's not really about free speech. Um, We've been too slow at, 
dealing with um, the platform formerly known as Twitter. But I don't really know how we would have been able to deal with the platform in a in a way that would be appropriate in a region that adheres to the rule of law. We do not legislate retroactively, but we also expect um, citizens and companies to actually follow the spirit and the letter of the law um, and not basically go in and hollow out all of the content moderation teams that were on the platform only months before a new legislation is coming in place. It's just irresponsible behavior. And then on the flip side, I mean, one one thing is what should be taken down of uh, the platforms, but also what should be continued to be allowed? What does the current regulatory framework tell us about what should be on the platform? So for instance, just, just to lay this out there, um, if uh, by virtue of where the company is based, uh, TikTok decides that certain political statements, uh, geopolitical statements, which should rather be removed or should at least get less visibility because they're inconvenient to to the to the owners of the platform does our current legislation say anything about this should be allowed on the platform because it's not hateful it just draws attention to the newsworthiness of the story i mean i'm pretty sure you can picture exactly what i'm referring to here um uh, does that is there current protections for, for for consumers in that sense that also they should be able to express themselves on certain platforms? There is protection uh, in the EU legislation, the Digital Services Act, in as far as it doesn't legislate about it. It leaves it up to the member states to decide what is legal and what is not legal for historical and cultural uh, reasons. We all have different pieces of, of legislation deciding on this nationally. And... I feared during the DSA negotiations that if we allowed for European legislation on what legal consent should be, that this would lead to a race to the bottom and we would reduce the amount of legal consent that we would be able to have in Europe because we would only allow for what would be allowed in each mem in every member state, in each member state. So there is nothing in the European legislation that says what is allowed to be online and what is not allowed to be online. That's to the courts and the member states locally to decide on. And it is the members in the member state where the person, the author of the content is based that decides on whether the content is legal or not. Uh, what we have is a dialogue with the, the platforms to see what is a responsible way of designing your platform so that they don't by accident or by algorithms that are geared in certain ways um, encourage either dangerous, self-harm, uh, hateful content um, just because that is what engages people the most and provides most eyeballs on the ads that you're also serving up. But that the platform thinks about how they gear their algorithms uh, rather than just letting them run wild. And one last question before we have to uh, come to to the end, uh, and I wanted to extrapolate a bit because the um, the question the, the, the conversation about social media 
Um, I remember, you know, with the, during the Arab Spring, it was like social media is the safe haven for democratic debate. And then it was the election of Donald Trump and, and, and Brexit and, you know, all the revelations about malpractice within these social media companies. And then it sort of swayed the other direction. And now it seems to be a bit of a mix where social media does have clearly benefits for, for consumers in, in, you know, to stay connected. On the other hand, uh, also a lot of things go wrong and, you know, the, the advertising, the way that it's done, it, it can be problematic. In your personal view, is social media a force for good still? During the Arab Spring, uh, the repressive governments didn't take the internet seriously. And that's why it was a way of organizing, uh, creating networks between, uh, between citizens that wanted change in their countries. Now these repressive governments have found out that the internet is something that they need to take seriously. They are using the tracking capabilities and spyware to actually repress people with. And the platforms have wanted to monetize the users and the platforms and are therefore much more controlling uh, what we see as users. The, the choice of what is presented to you is taken away from you. Uh, during the Arab Springs, you could by following certain hashtags, by creating lists, you could on Twitter very fine-tune um, a news feed that would provide you with what was going on in Cairo and Tahir Square. And that is just not as possible anymore because list functions and search functions have been demoted in favor of a for you page and promotion of trending topics that you might not care about at all. And it becomes very difficult to actually find what is newsworthy for you. Well, thank you so much for explaining these issues to us today and for joining the Consumer Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow uh, consumer choice center on all the social media platforms that's x instagram uh, facebook uh, we have a telegram channel we have a bunch of things so follow us on all of them and please uh, like and subscribe to whatever you are uh, uh, enjoying the most uh, do recommend this podcast to friends and family really appreciate all the feedback on the fun police uh, season two series and uh, yeah i'll see you thursday mm -hmm.